0: Hi, welcome to episode 33 of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. For this week's episode, I'm joined by a special guest, Frank White, an EMFX trader, will be joining me in a look ahead to two EM elections later this year that could potentially lead to massive FX volatility, talking about Brazil and the Philippines. The title for this episode is watershed elections in key markets. Hi, I'm
1: Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges, presented by BMO Capital Markets.
0: Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Stephen's co-host.
1: In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets like commodities.
0: We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash globalexchanges. Thanks for joining us.
2: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Hello, listeners. Let me start by noting that we are recording in the morning of February 15th. When I say we, this time I don't mean Stephen and me. Stephen Gallo and I have done 33 of these now, always together and sometimes with a guest. But for this week, Stephen is taking a well-deserved vacation. Next week, I'll do the same. But vacations or not, we figured that the show must go on. So I reached out to a colleague, Frank White, of our FX Trading Desk, and asked him to join me. Frank has graciously agreed. So, uh, Frank, welcome to Global Exchanges. Thanks, Greg,
1: for having me on.
0: Hey, Frank, so that our listeners know better who they're listening to, um, let me ask you, how long have you been trading in FX? And uh, how long have you been specifically trading emerging markets?
1: I've done uh, FX for about 15 years now and EM the whole time.
0: So, Frank, 15 years of lifetime in financial markets. Let me ask you a follow up question, if I could. With your 15 year career, what emerging market blow up really stands out to you and has left the greatest impression on you?
1: Well, there's uh, a lot to choose from, sadly. Probably have to say 2008, and in particular, the massive rally in Dollar Max as all those super leveraged structures that were put on in the boom times exploded all at once. And hey, Greg, how about you? What's the uh, emerging market event that's uh, left the biggest impression on you?
0: So uh, I'm an old guy, and I'll have to go back a little bit earlier. And I would say the Argentina crisis of 2001, 2002. I was a Latin America strategist for a bank with a big exposure down there at that time. And and I guess, you know, looking back on it, technology wasn't quite what it is now, but uh, there was such thing as streaming over the internet. And I can remember watching grainy footage of local news broadcasts in Argentina and just basically... Uh, a succession of presidents uh, resigning over the course of, uh, of about a month. I, I guess that has left me with the firm view that for emerging markets, uh, you know, the most important fundamental beyond all others is what I would call the political fundamental. What, what do you think about that, Frank?
1: I, I absolutely agree. I mean, in developed markets, I mean, obviously politics and policy can change things at the margin. But there is a baseline assumption of a certain degree of normalcy and a policy continuity. And that doesn't always hold in emerging markets. So you can see really big changes.
0: Okay. uh, So, Frank, with that intro that we've given, I want to uh, start to ask you about one of this year's biggest elections. And and I'm talking about Brazil's. I have a few questions that uh, hopefully will be helpful to our listeners as they try to structure their thinking and uh, look ahead to that event. So for Brazil, you're on the hot seat. Fire away. Okay. So let me start by asking you, first off, just kind of political structure of Brazil. Does the country have a, a prime minister who's selected by the uh, members of parliament, or is it a president that's selected directly by the country? And, and what's, what's the term limit? Brazil has a president
1: and similar functions to the United States. So head of state, head of government, commander in chief of the armed forces, And that person is directly elected, though through compulsory voting, for a term of four years. They can serve two consecutive terms. And importantly here, they can serve more than that as long as the terms are not consecutive.
0: Okay, next question. What are the key dates in the timeline of the election?
1: The first round of voting is going to be on Sunday, October 2nd. If any candidate gets more than 50% of the votes cast, it's over. If not, it will go to a second round four weeks later on October 30th. But if you're going to run, you have to resign any other office you hold six months before. So that's early April. And you officially have to register on August 15th.
0: So with the timeline and your experience in, uh, in trading in Rial, how many days, weeks, months prior to the election does it sort of be- become the number one theme in the FX market? Or is the election typically a, a secondary theme behind central bank policy and, and other stuff?
1: Politics, and especially presidential politics, are very important for the Real, so to some extent that's always in the price. I mean, there isn't really a time when the market suddenly gets focused on it. But that said, it's Brazil. Anything can happen, and a lot can happen between here and there. So it's difficult to know I mean, exactly what to hedge and how much.
0: Is, is there a timeline when you typically see uh, investors in uh, Brazil start to put on election date hedges? You probably see that
1: about starting six months out.
0: So we're, we're, we're getting to that season, but April-ish, you probably want to be more, more heavy hedging?
1: Probably, yeah, when you get a bit more clarity on who's running.
0: Okay, so now let's get down to the candidates. And actually, before we have that discussion, let me just say that uh, neither BMO as an institution nor we as commentators have uh, any intent of swaying voters in one direction or another with this podcast. Our intent is simply to lay out what we think market response might be to certain candidates doing well in preliminary surveys, and then ultimately winning uh, the election. So uh, with that important disclaimer, there are a lot of political parties in Brazil, Frank, but who do you view as the two or three main candidates, and where would you put them on the political spectrum? So the main candidates
1: are, I mean, it's really two main ones. The current president, Joe Bolsonaro, running for re-election, and then... Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, or just Lula for short, who was president from 2003 to 2010 and remains very popular. So, just about every poll that you've had this year has had Lula north of 40%, and generally Bolsonaro in the mid 20s. Of the rest, I oh, mean, who's polling the best and I think likely has the most compelling story with the voters, especially in a country that's dealt with corruption for so long, is Sergio Mora. Was pulling about 10%. He was a federal judge who initially led Operation Car Wash, which was the massive corruption investigation in which a lot of public figures were caught up, including Lula himself. So in terms of spectrum, Lula is an old school leftist, though this time around he's pre-announced his vice presidential candidate almost certainly as Geraldo Alckman, who's governor of Sao Paulo, an experienced hand, and a moderate. Don't know much about Moro's political philosophy. He did serve in Bolsonaro's cabinet, but he would likely run as an anti-corruption candidate, likely of a moderate stride. Bolsonaro is generally regarded as being right wing, and he is very socially conservative. He's generally pro-business, market friendly, though he's certainly not a fiscal conservative.
0: So Frank, if you don't mind me underscoring a key point of uh, what you just mentioned, Financial markets and and particularly external investors uh, with big exposures in foreign exchange, they're pretty familiar with both of these two leading candidates, seen them run the country before. And although I I remember back when Lula was elected the first time, there was a tremendous amount of fear. He did not blow the country up. Things proceeded quite fine. So, you know, is there much fear for either candidate, do you think? I think that there is one particular
1: worry, and it's actually the same for both. So, I mean, in Brazil, you have the golden rule, which is actually in the constitution that you could only take on debt to fund investment, not current spending. And the last president, last elected president, was impeached in part for violating that rule. But that's gone out the window more or less under Bolsonaro in that he wanted to extend these covid era relief programs, which are very popular with people. So, I mean, the worry, no matter who it is, is that the fiscal situation is going to become completely unmoored. I mean, that said, in terms of regulation, what's generally considered friendly for business, Bolsonaro is generally regarded as better. And there is some worry that Lula could form a real part of the second pink wave in South America of AMLO in Mexico, Alberto Fernandez, Argentina, Castillo in Peru, Bork in Chile. But again, all of those have proven themselves, aside from Fernandez, to be quite pragmatic as Lula was the first time he was in office, and he saw a massive rally in Brazilian assets at that time.
0: These are fascinating perspectives. Thanks, Frank. Let me ask you about uh, Central Bank of Brazil. Uh, So they've been raising rates quite aggressively over the past six months. Do you think the election might cause the Central Bank to behave differently this year, let's say, than, than it would if it were not an election year? I think it
1: definitely has been different because it's an election year but they're not responding directly to politics. That the election year has partly induced Bolsonaro to continue with these social transfer programs, which has weakened the fiscal situation and tended to stoke inflation through greater spending. So BCB is reacting to the threat of inflation and worries about currency weakness and are hypersensitive to that since there is a living memory of hyperinflation in this country. But that's the response rather than to the politics itself.
0: Okay, so let me just turn the heat up to Max, if I if I can, on the on the hot seat. So given the political fundamental and all the other fundamentals that are important for Dollar Brazil, can you kind of lay out your personal view for Dollar Brazil for the rest of this year? Sure.
1: I mean, I think that the themes are going to be an old one, which is the search for yield. With even with central banks hiking around the world, there is still huge demand for higher yielding assets and i mean brazil is leading the league i mean that rates are likely to peak north of 12 percent uh, which should support the currency and then the other big thing which is a more recent one is I mean, the massive surges you've seen in commodities and Brazil is a country very rich in that which again would tend to support the currency so I mean, with two candidates converging, I mean, to similar positions, I don't think that, even if you told me which one was going to win, that it would make that much of a difference, and I tend to think that there are a lot of tailwinds for the rail at this
0: point. One twist, contested election, would your answer change? Of
1: course. I mean, I, I think even if all goes relatively smoothly, you're bound to have a lot of volatility, and in the case that you don't have a clear outcome, it would be even worse. Wow, Greg, I'm uh, starting to understand why you uh, like to call it the hot seat. But, uh, but now it's my turn. So I'd like to uh, switch things up and ask you uh, similar questions
0: about the Philippine election. To start, could you describe the political system there and how long the head of state serves? So Philippines has a presidential system, fairly similar to the U.S., I guess. But actually, I'd say it's more similar to Mexico's system. And, and one of the reasons for that is that uh, the Philippines' constitution stipulates that presidents can only serve for one six-year term. There is a vice president, and if the vice president assumes control for the president, and this this has happened a a number of times over the last 35 years, in that case, if the vice president, you know, has been in for two years or less, then they can run for their own six-year term. But uh, at any rate, that's not the case in in this instance. We have uh, Rodrigo Duterte He has served five and a half and change years of his six-year term. So it is up. It is due. You know, I would say there was a lot of chatter uh, about changing the Constitution or, you know, using COVID as a reason to postpone the election. That was last year. It it hasn't happened. uh, So this election is on.
1: And what's the timeline for the election in the Philippines?
0: So the election date, it's Monday, May 9th. And I'll point out, you know, in addition to the president and vice president, the whole House of Representatives plus um, half of the 24 Senate seats are, are up for election plus uh, local elections too. So really big election date. And the uh, uh, Philippine Constitution kind of ha- has a stipulated campaign season. It started on February 9th. So it is go right now. The only other like key dates to, to note, so there's a quiet period, April 14th and 15th, sort of an Easter pause, if you will. And then a, a one-day quiet period on May 8th when people can't campaign and, and no opinion surveys can be published. In terms of uh, you know when will we know, probably the day of. The, the vote counting for all of the other minor elections, You know, at, they have a week uh, between May 10th and 16th. But kind of worst-case scenario, if it's a messy counting process, uh, that's how long it could delay. But probably we will know on May 9th. And then the inauguration is June 30th.
1: So you said that now that we're, we're in the thick of campaign season. Typically, when do you see people really start to to hedge Philippine exposure ahead of elections? When does politics take center stage for the peso?
0: So I would say, um, you know, look, the, the carry in, in PHP is not, not what it is in BRL now. And so people can hedge, and, and, and I have been hedging um, without much of a cost to doing that. So I'll point out kind of last year, July period, there was what I would call an anomaly in in dollar Philippines. And what I mean by that is like it really deviated from the pattern of ADXY. So it seemed like a a local trade, peso weakness. Similarly, it was kind of another little period like that in January of this year. So I kind of think that that the hedges are, are largely in. They're in place already. So the, the trading that we'll see on the theme, you know, I think that's probably more more locals than foreign hedgers. And I do think that it is probably the number one theme in, in the market for Dollar Philippines as of right now.
1: So in this election, it's a pretty big and crowded field. Who do you think are going to emerge as the main candidates? And what do you believe is the market view of each one of them?
0: So I think we're already down to two, maybe three people who are, are legit contenders. In the lead, uh, and I'm going off of data from a, a poll that was published two days ago by local radio station, RMN. That poll had Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And, and yes, we're talking about the son of uh, Ferdinand Marcos, um, the dictator from, from the 80s. He has a fairly commanding lead. Uh, so that survey had him with about 50% of support Next up with 19% support, current sitting uh, Vice President uh, Maria Robredo. And then uh, Manny Pacquiao is the one that I think uh, a lot of people from outside the Philippines are are watching most closely with his his fame as as a boxer. Uh, He's currently tied for third with 11% support. And I'll just point out here, one of the more fascinating things is... As I mentioned, the vice president isn't strictly on the ticket with the president. So there's a chance you could have a president elected from one party and a vice president from another, even though each one of these presidents have kind of aligned themselves with a vice president candidate. At any rate, Robredo, she was Duterte's vice president, but she is not aligned with Duterte's daughter, who is the vice president lining up with Ferdinand Marcos. Just kind of a, a fascinating subdrama there that I think will, will get a lot of the media attention. In terms of the market attention, I think we have just a whole ton of unknowns from both of those candidates in terms of uh, economic policy. But I think the bigger issue is, is not economic policy, it's foreign policy. So I will point out my personal view on this again. With hindsight, Duterte has done a pretty good job of what I would call walking the tightrope between the United States and China. So both relationships are extremely important to the Philippines economically and in terms of security, trade, history, military relations, uh, you know, kind of the whole nine yards. And um, the U.S. and China are doing their best to make countries pick sides. Duterte is, like I said, he, he has walked the tightrope fairly well. And the open question with um, both of these leading candidates is, can they do the same? Can they continue to walk the tightrope or will they fall off and, and then have that lead to a rupture of relationship with one of these two major investor countries?
1: So, Greg, what's your view on dollar peso this year? And would that change if you had a crystal ball and somehow knew today who was going to win?
0: So dollar Philippines been uh, drifting upward pretty much for all of this year. And, and I think that that move, if anything, is likely to accelerate a bit. And so, I, you know, I kind of think we'll move up to about 53 between now and the election. Assuming we have a, a peaceful transition, um, I think some of those aforementioned hedges would roll off. And I think that, you know, that would be the top when we move lower at something like 52 or 51. I also think upward pressure from, from the Fed and the, and the big dollar on emerging markets will dissipate in the second half of the year. So that's sort of my my general view. So if I had a crystal ball about the election, would it change my view? No. But I think if the market had a crystal ball and um, we knew today who, who was going to be the president on July 1st, then maybe this, this bulge um, that I'm talking about, move up to 53, wouldn't happen. I would just forecast a straight line for you.
1: And if it's a contested
0: election? Oh, Nelly, Can't rule that out in Philippines, just, just like Brazil. You know, probably a spike, dollar Philippines to, to 55. But, you know, I don't know. Central Bank may may be able to control that uh, as well. But that, that would be my knee-jerk uh, expectation. Um, I got to tell you, Frank, it's not as much fun being on the hot seat. But I wanted to thank you for uh, being willing to do that and for willing to fill in and, and join the show.
1: Thanks very much for having me on, Greg.
0: We look forward to um, potentially having you again and maybe as these elections happen sort of in in real time. I'd like to thank also our listeners for joining us and for sticking through to the end. And I will not be back next week, but uh, Stephen will be with a special guest and I won't front run that. But until then, all the best. Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges.
1: We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider.
0: This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
2: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. FIMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter